the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I have to admit, I'm already tired. I took my niece um, school clothes shopping midday today. And I wore flip-flops. I don't wear flip-flops to work, but they're, they're fancy ones. And the sole's really thick. I can barely walk in them. It's just been an exhausting day. And yet, I'm harnessing all of my resources for the sake of today's program. Uh, by the way, James Blind is uh, producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Clark, by the way, about to head out for a vacation, which he has uh, certainly earned. I will say that. We're glad to have you with us uh, for a number of reasons. One of them is that we've got three great guests lined up. We're going to talk with Morgan Tyree later this hour. She's the author of Take Back Your Time, Identifying Your Priorities. Man, school clothes are, they're expensive. They're really expensive and they're, like the, the jeans looked like they'd already been worn. They looked like you would have been taking them back to get new ones. And that's what they were, I mean, that wasn't, that's not altogether new, but these were even more shredded than the ones I remember. Anyway, Morgan Tyree will join us. She's uh, the author of Take Back Your Time, Identify Your Priorities, Decrease Stress, and Increase Productivity. One way to do that is not to go school shopping in the middle of a workday. That would be one thing. Uh, the other would be not to wear flip-flops you can barely walk in. First of all, don't wear flip-flops to work. This was an exception, but they matched my pants. It's all I had. And you don't even care, but I just thought you'd want to know. Anyway, Malcolm, uh, John Malcolm will be my guest in the five o'clock hour. He's vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government and the director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to talk about a bill that's being considered. It's the Fair Chance Act. It would require the federal government and federal contractors to ban the box as part of their hiring practices so that you would not be um, permitted, this is in for federal criminals in federal employment uh, situations, uh, contractors and government workers, to ask the question prior to the interview and only after you have extended an offer would you then be able to pursue a background check and ask those questions. So anyway, that's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll also talk with Jake Warner, who serves as legal counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, where he is a key member of the Center for Conscience Initiatives, and we're going to talk about two cases that deal with just that, the conscience of business owners. One is a T-shirt maker, the other does videos, who choose to not to communicate certain messages. They'll serve any client, uh, but they will not communicate every message when they're uh, called upon to do so by a potential client. So we'll talk about the court cases pending on that. One of them resolved on Friday, another uh, oral arguments heard in their Supreme Court in the state of Kentucky on Friday. So John, or I should say Jake Warner, will join us to talk about that. We're also going to revisit what happens uh, in the VA. You might recall some months ago when any religious symbols or paraphernalia, Bibles, uh, uh, Qurans, anything, was uh, no longer welcome at the VA, despite the fact that there were veterans there who uh, wanted those things. Chaplains were limited and so on. Well, there's been a reversal, and we'll tell you about that later in the program as well. 
First, a look at some of the day's headlines. Asian shares traded mostly higher on Tuesday following a rally on Wall Street. Traders are cautiously optimistic, again, about the potential for progress in the costly trade war between the U.S. and China. Japan's benchmark Nikkei rose 1.2 percent. Hong Kong's Hang Seng rose at first, but reversed course was down about 0.2 percent. And China's Shanghai Composite was up 1.1 percent. U.S. equity futures were were searching for direction this morning. Monday's rally on Wall Street got its start early after the president said his negotiators had received encouraging calls from China on Sunday, though China's foreign ministry denied knowledge of any such calls. little confusion there. At the end of the G7 summit, the president stood firm and defended his handling of the trade war with China and said his approach was seeing results. And with the deadline to qualify for next month's third round of Democratic presidential debates closing in, the Democratic National Committee is facing an angry chorus of criticism from the candidates not likely to make that cut. At issue is the DNC's criteria for the contenders to take part in the primetime showdown, including contributions from 130,000 distinct individual donors and reaching at least 2% in four qualifying polls. Representative Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii, Montana Governor Steve Bullock, Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado were among the candidates complaining about the DNC process, saying primarily that there aren't enough polls that, that are qualifying so that we can meet, reach that threshold. And while the criticism is not new, this time around, the National Party Committee is specifically, they're being attacked over the dearth of qualifying polls. Critics say this is unfairly preventing candidates close to qualifying from actually making the stage. Bullock, who also needs a Miracle to qualify by the end of Wednesday's deadline argue that these DNC debate rules have turned this primary into the Hunger Games. Each step of this seems to be all about getting donors. And I didn't see the Hunger Games, so I'm not sure how that reference applies. But for those of you who did, that's what they're comparing it to. Um, also, in a day of dueling and contradictory polls, Monmouth struck first with a shocking poll showing Biden dropped 13 points and trails Bernie Sanders and um, Elizabeth Warren both, 20 percent respectively, by a point, um, or I should say by a point with each candidate at 20 percent. Camp Biden dismissed the poll as an outlier. And later in the day, a morning consult poll shows little has changed. Biden has a 13 point lead on the field. Sanders is comfortably in second, five points ahead of Warren. Another day, another clip of Biden struggling to explain where he is and the polls trying to sort out who's on top. Um, And from another story, they are a diverse bunch, prosecutors and homemakers, business leaders and federal workers. Some are gearing up for local elections. Others, like Valerie Ramirez, uh, Mukhegi of Illinois, are running for a seat in Congress straight away. We're talking about a record number of Republican women running for office. Naturally, NBC News highlights Mukhegi since she supports abortion rights and gay rights. So they like her. The others, not so much. Up to 30 of Jeffrey Epstein's alleged victims uh, took to uh, the courts today. Uh, Speaking to a judge on his invitation to speak at a hearing, U.S. District Judge Richard Berman, who presided over the sex trafficking case prosecutors brought against Epstein, uh, scheduled the hearing after prosecutors asked that uh, he toss charges against Epstein because of his death. Epstein, a previously convicted sex offender, died on the 10th of August. His death ruled a suicide as he apparently killed himself rather than face 
the sex trafficking charges or perhaps more significantly life in prison. Berman said he would give prosecutors um, Epstein's a lawyer and any alleged victims a chance to speak. Since the hearing was scheduled, it was revealed that Epstein signed a will just two days before his suicide, putting over $577 million in assets into a trust fund. That will, um, filed in the Virgin, Virgin Islands, rather, where Epstein maintained a residence, was expected to make it more difficult for dozens of accusers to collect damages. The hearing today comes amid a report that video footage from a, at least one camera in the hallway outside of his jail cell is too flawed to be any value for investigators. That uh, uh, investigation continuing. An Oklahoma judge found Johnson & Johnson and Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies liable for stoking the opioid crisis in the state and said the company must pay $572 million, far less than the $17 billion that the state was seeking. Judge Thad Balkman of Cleveland County District Court in Norman, Oklahoma, is the first judge to rule in the opioid cases brought to trial by thousands of state and local governments against opioid manufacturers and distributors. His precedent-setting ruling was uh, being closely watched as 2,000 other pending suits await to be um, heard before a federal judge in Ohio in October. Johnson & Johnson said it plans to appeal Balkman's ruling and that the decision was flawed. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Morgan Tyree. Take back your time, identify your priorities, decrease stress, and increase productivity. Well, a coalition of 20 Democratic attorneys general, attorneys general announced on Monday they're suing to block the administration's new rules that would allow immigrant families who are in the United States illegally to be detained while their deportation hearings are taking place. The 19 states in the District of Columbia uh, said that they're responsible for ensuring the health, the safety of children at detention facilities inside their boundaries so they have standing to sue in order to protect their health. So this would have allowed the children of these migrants to stay with them during this process. Uh, That is not acceptable. Separating them from their families while the process takes place is not acceptable. I'm not sure what um, would be considered um, an acceptable solution at this point. Federal prosecutors in Pittsburgh said Monday that they intend to seek the death penalty against the man accused of gunning down 11 people at a synagogue last year. Uh, As uh, Mark Alexander revealed at the time, the suspect was inspired in part Uh, because of the um, most pro-Israel president since Ronald Reagan. Hmm. On Monday, President Donald Trump declared, if the circumstances were correct or right, I would certainly agree to meet with Iran President Hassan Rouhani, he added. But in the meantime, they have to be good players. Rouhani is currently not being a good player. According to the Daily Caller, Iran's parliament is preparing a bill to sanction top Trump administration officials and their supporters in Congress for what regime officials described as their long animosity toward Iran. Rouhani also personally responded, first, the U.S. should act by lifting all illegal unjust and unfair sanctions imposed on Iran, which, by the way, are having a significant impact on that nation's economy. Presidential candidate Joe Biden is an indisputable frontrunner no more, according to the Monmouth University polling. In a new survey, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders of Massachusetts 
or I should say, and Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren and Biden are currently bunched together in a national Democratic presidential preference contest. The poll finds a virtual three-way tie among Sanders, Warren, and Biden, 20% for the first two, 19 for the former vice president. In the presidential nomination, preferences of registered Democrats and Democrat-leaning voters across the country. Compared to Monmouth's June poll, these results represent an increase in support for both Sanders uh, up from 14 percent and Warren up from 15 percent and a significant drop for Biden down from 32 percent. Wisconsin Governor, or rather GOP Representative Sean Duffy on Monday abruptly announced plans to resign from Congress, saying his family recently learned that their soon-to-be-born child has a serious heart condition. Duffy is the father of eight children with another due in October. And the Republican vice chairman of the Federal Elections Commission resigned on Monday, leaving the election oversight agency without enough members to vote on enforcement actions. Matthew S. Peterson said that he submitted his letter of resignation to the White House Monday morning. It said that he will leave the agency by the end of the week. It's just the right time, said Peterson, who has won wide praise for his steady and thoughtful approach to election issues. His dedication to the First Amendment and battles to fend off the regulation of technology and the Internet. And on this day in history, 1859, Edwin Drake drills the first successful oil well in the United States at uh, Titusville, Pennsylvania. On this day in 1928, the Kellogg brand packed or braid pack. Kellogg is a different thing than the, you know, cereal. The Kellogg Braid Pact is signed in Paris, outlawing war and providing for the peaceful settlement of disputes. Oh, would that that uh, pact had held. On this day in 1989, the first U.S. commercial satellite rocket is launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida, a Delta booster carrying a British communication satellite, the Marco Polo 1. And finally, on this day in 2008, Barack Obama was nominated for president by the Democratic National Convention in Denver. Well, President Trump's proposed Space Force is another step closer to taking off, as top brass announced this week. Actually, it was last week that a space combatant command will launch later this month, a key uh, step toward materializing the space-focused branch. Space Command, or SpaceCom, the Defense Department's first new combatant command since 2009, will launch August the 29th. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford, said on Tuesday at a National Space Council meeting in Chantilly, Virginia, which was also attended by the vice president. Air Force General John J. Raymond has been tapped to command SpaceCom and its 87 units, which Dunford said will cover missile warning, satellite operations, space control and space support, according to Defense News. This initiative is going to have a positive impact on our ability to grow the people and capabilities that we are going to need in the future. I'm confident the focus that a single service will bring to bear is going to have a profound difference, Dunford said of the U.S. Space Force. The direction is clear. We understand it and we're moving out, he added. President Trump first floated the idea of a space force in March of 2018 when he told service members at Marine Corps Air Station Miramar in San Diego that he was considering the addition of a space force. That May, the president formally announced that his administration was mulling the creation of the military branch. This past February, he formally directed the Pentagon to create the U.S. Space Force to be part of the Air Force, similar to how the Marine Corps uh, is part of the Department of the Navy. It's the future. It's where we're going, Trump said when signaling the directive known as the Space Policy Directive 4. I suspect whether we like it or not, that's where we're going in space. That's the next step. And we have to be prepared again, August the 29th. Well, Forbes media chairman, Steve Forbes, um, is warning that not to be fooled. The IRS will never send you any unsolicited email or email 
uh, you about uh, the status of your tax return. There's a new scam out there. Officials this month warned taxpayers to watch out for a new scam after receiving an uptick of reports about unsolicited emails from imposters claiming to represent the IRS. Some of the recent scam emails included subject lines like automatic income tax reminder or electronic tax return reminder, officials said. They include links to websites that look like IRS.gov but aren't the actual IRS website. When a user clicks to access files purportedly about their refund, electronic return, or tax account, they inadvertently download malware. The scammers can then gain control of the computer or track every keystroke, learning passwords and other sensitive data, officials warned. The IRS does not send emails about your tax refund or sensitive financial information. That's a quote from the IRS commissioner, Chuck Reddick. Uh, This latest scheme is yet another reminder that tax scams are a year-round business for thieves. We urge you to be on guard at all times. Officials say they've worked with state tax agencies and the tax industry to combat stolen identity refund fraud. But uh, people still remain vulnerable to scams by imposters sending phony emails or making annoying phone calls that are very convincing. It's important to remember that the IRS doesn't initiate contact with taxpayers by email, text messages or social media. Anyone requesting personal or financial info like PIN numbers, passwords or account information on those channels is not working for the IRS. The IRS also doesn't call to demand immediate payment using a specific method like a prepaid debit card, gift card or wire transfer of Officials say they will usually mail you a bill instead. Well, now you know. Well, this week, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals is going to hear arguments from conservative pundit Dennis Prager's educational organization, Prager University, or Prager U, against the Google-owned YouTube for improperly blocking younger viewers' access to its videos. Prager U consists of weekly five-minute videos in which a variety of thinkers and policy experts explain a wide range of subjects, from politics to religion to philosophy and personal improvement. Among Prager U's offerings have been a moral case against abortion and an expose of Planned Parenthood. Well, that did not sit well. In October of 2017, Prager filed a federal lawsuit against YouTube and its parent company for placing dozens, currently more than 200 PragerU videos in restricted mode, meaning they were inaccessible from accounts that employed parental controls to, to shield children from violent, sexual, or otherwise inappropriate content. His suit argued that the videos contained no sex, nudity, foul language, graphic violence, and were being restricted in violation of YouTube's terms of use. The suit was tossed last year, leading PragerU to appeal to the Ninth Circuit, as well as file another lawsuit in state court. The Seventh Circuit will hear arguments in the case... um, uh, and PragerU's lawsuit argues first that YouTube officials' own testimony identifying itself as a public forum makes it subject to judicial precedent that identifies such a forum's speech regulations as state action subject to First Amendment scrutiny. We'll uh, continue to follow the story because I believe the hearing uh, took place earlier today. We'll let you know uh, what happens. Of course, it all moves rather slowly. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with Morgan Tyree. She's the author of Take Back Your Time, Identify Your Priorities, Decrease Stress, and Increase Productivity. She earned her B.S. degree in business administration with an emphasis in small business and entrepreneurship at the University of Oregon. She's worked in the fields of marketing, management, and human resources. And she blogs weekly at Morganize With Me and contributes monthly to the popular blog, I'm an organizing junkie. So if you're disorganized, whether or not that's your stuff or your thinking or your time, you'll want to stick around to identify your priorities, decrease your stress, and increase your productivity. Up next. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. But let's be honest. Managing our time can be an overwhelming struggle for many of us. It doesn't matter what season of life we're in. Finding balance and direction is an ongoing battle when so many things are fighting for our attention. Well, in her new book, Take Back Your Time, Identify Your Priorities, Decrease Stress, and Increase Productivity, professional organizer and blogger Morgan Tyree, she offers a practical guide to conquer stress and increase productivity using her three-color time zone system. I know what you might be thinking. Oh, no, I'm not sure I can organize in that way. But she shows readers how to create a three-color time zone system of green for focus on tasks, yellow for multitasking, and red for downtime. Stay with me now. And she shows readers how to coordinate life activities and tasks into these three zones and how to protect them. She also addresses how to identify the most productive times every day, how to regulate uh, between essentials and non-essentials and match time zones with your capacities. Now, it may sound complicated. Complicated, but trust me, it's subdoable. Morgan Tyree, she knows what it's like to have to manage her time well. She earned her BS degree in business administration with an emphasis in small business and entrepreneurship from the University of Oregon, my alma mater, and has worked in the fields of marketing, management, and human resources. She blogs weekly at Morganize With Me and contributes monthly to the popular blog Organizing Junkie. She and her husband, David, have three children and live in Fort Collins, Colorado, but she joins us today by phone to talk about her book, Take back your time, identify your priorities, decrease stress, and increase productivity. Hey, thank you so much for joining us, Morgan. Yes, thank you for having me. I am so excited to be here. Now, you write in Take Back Your Time um, that it was born from your own personal and profound experience of living through five seasons. And you're not referring to the seasons uh, on the calendar, but you're referring to seasons in life. Share what those seasons looked like and what experiences helped shape this book that will help us shape our lives perhaps more effectively. Yes, for sure. So I identified and I looked back just kind of where I've been from, from graduating college to now, and I went through a season of being in a more traditional work environment, you know, focusing on career, and then I stayed home for a season and had our children. I even spent a season of homeschooling, and then we moved abroad, which was a very unique and different season, and then currently we're now back in the States, and I've been running my own business now, and so really just put that hat on of being an entrepreneur. And so I just learned that it's been interesting how each season has a lot of uniqueness to it and that I've had to orchestrate my time differently. And then now as I currently help people with time management and organizing their homes and businesses, I've gleaned a lot of what can work and what doesn't work and how to really encourage people with their time management. Mm -hmm. My husband has recently retired, and I was intrigued by the fact the book doesn't just deal with those who are overwhelmed by their full calendars, but you explain that having too much time can be just as challenging as having too little time. Most of us would probably like to live with that challenge, but um, why is it so challenging to have too much time as well as too, or I should say, too little yeah, well, I think what, what the challenge is there, and I, and I really did experience this firsthand when we moved abroad because my life took a complete different direction and a lot of my purpose and priorities sort of diminished and I had to kind of recreate my time and schedule. And I think that like, you know, someone retiring or having a major life change, there is often that reality that our time isn't as focused for us or maybe as structured for us. And while it's not necessarily a negative thing, it can be a little harder to stay motivated or to structure your time 
because there's not as many boundaries on your time. You may have so much time that maybe you end up almost doing less or not being as productive as you could be because there's more, you know, there's plenty of time that goes Mm -hmm. around. So it's that intentionality piece. I want people to think about how can I be intentional whether I have a lot of time or a little bit of time, either way. You write that your time is a responsibility, it's a privilege, and a gift. Talk a little bit about that, because our perspective on time might help us have the gumption, if you will, to try to manage it well. Yeah, well, our time, I mean, obviously it's fixed for all of us. We all have, you know, 24 hours in a day. And we also, you know, our days are numbered in that that sense, too. And so, I think that when we are reminded of that and we think of our time as a gift, as something that we should be stewarding well and steering our time, it can help, again, with that mindset of intentionality. It doesn't mean that we're always being productive, but rather that we're focused on where we're going. So I feel like a lot of times we'll say that certain things are a priority in our lives, but then we aren't actually prioritizing them. And I just think that we have to be really careful to not fall into complacency with our time. Mm -hmm. You discussed the need to embrace uh, your current season, and you spoke a few moments ago about uh, various seasons in your life. Uh, Before we start, uh, we can start to manage our time. We need to embrace uh, the current season that we're in. What do you mean by that? And how do we identify a season? What makes up a season? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I think that there's a couple of ways to look at it. And I say the word embrace because I think sometimes we don't always choose all the parts of our season of life. You know, so there's that, there's an acceptance piece maybe too, because not all of our choices are ours entirely. And Mm -hmm. so I won't always give grace there. But I I recommend in the book really taking a look at your time um, as as you already are using it. And you can do a time log and, and log your time for a week and really see where your time is already being spent. And in doing so, you can hopefully identify some of your main purposes in your season. And so that may be a, a, a career or that may be raising your children or that may be volunteering. You may have different things that are on your plate for this season. So I think a lot of times where you're spending your time will help you identify the purposes, but it can also help you see maybe where you're not using your time as um, fruitfully as possible, because sometimes we'll think we spend all these hours doing something and then in reality it's opposite or vice versa, you know, things are taking a lot longer than we may realize. So that can help really kind of hone in on what, what am I really being called to do right now? Because we can't do everything yeah. to prioritize. Yeah, yeah that's such a, a wise uh, approach because we sometimes imagine that we can do everything in a single season when we have a lifetime in which to uh, to do certain things that fit with where we happen to be at that time. So that's such a wise approach and gives us, I would imagine, a little bit of, of peace knowing that I don't have to do everything today. Yeah, I think I hope it gives people freedom because, and I would, know, I would never want to discourage people from, you know, staying on a path towards a dream or working towards a goal, but I do think there is likely some seasons that are more conducive to certain things than others. And so, and that's going to be very individual, but I think self-awareness and even speaking to people that know you well and, and asking them, you know, do you think I'm, how am I doing in this area with my time or am I reaching these goals? And yeah. Bouncing that off can help too. You point out that all times of the day are not created equal. Are there times that naturally are more productive for us or is it unique to each individual? There are night people, there are morning people. Um, how do we determine which parts of the day um, are, are likely to be more useful to us? Mm-hmm. So some of that can, can be helpful um, from the time log. That may be something that if you, if you log your time for a week, it may kind of bring some things to your attention and you could see some trends. Or you may just know that about yourself. Some people are very clear, like they'll say, I'm a morning person or I'm a night owl, and that's very much, they, they know that. I know for me, in my afternoons, I tend to I tend to hit a lull. 
and I've shifted over the years. I used to be a night owl. I'm definitely now more of a of an early bird. So I think it's kind of looking at how you, what you naturally do, and there may be um, some some things you might want to do to increase discipline if you have certain demands at certain times of the day that you need to be more productive. But if you can press into kind of how you are hardwired and also how that how your natural rhythms work, it can be really helpful. Now, you uh, have come up with a three-color method, and as I was uh, trying to just give the highlights, it may sound very complicated to our listeners, but first, let's just talk about how you came up with the idea. Yeah, well, you know, it really spurred from the fact that I, I don't know, I've worked in the fitness industry a long time, and then now I do my professional organizing, so I do a lot of coaching with people, and really, what I'm providing is accountability, and what they're having me come in to help with is for them to focus on something, whether it's, you know, organizing a room or working on their time management or filing papers, whatever it is. And it's hard for us sometimes to uh, carve out the time that we want to carve out for things. And so that I found that that when I'm working with my clients, that is truly that green time zone. We are focusing on the task. We're setting down other things and we're, we're just really working on one task start to finish. And so I've, I've seen that that is, there's a place for that. But then I've also, from that, it rolled into, we also need times in our days where there's, um, there's the freedom to be flexible because especially a great example is parents. Parents usually have to be very flexible if they've got kids in the house because there's more interruptions and there's more demands on their time. Mm -hmm. And they're usually these start and stop things. And then I also found for myself and, and for my clients, we all need to find ways to fill ourselves up. And that's how we can then have a foundation to be productive if we take care of ourselves as well. So it's just come from some personal experiences and trial and error and seeing what works and doesn't work. Now, we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Morgan uh, Tyree. She's the author of Take Back Your Time, Identify Your Priorities, Decrease Stress, and Increase Productivity. She writes about it all in the book. We'll uh, be back in just a few moments to talk with her about it. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Morgan Tyree. She's the author of Take Back Your Time, Identifying Your Priorities, Decrease Stress, and Increase Productivity. And don't we all want to do just that? Well, this is a practical guide to help us do that in a way that we can live with. Now, let's talk about how the productivity chart works and the role it plays in the, the time zones that you have created. Yeah, in the book, I have a chart where you can sort of identify those times in the day. I have like a, a three different star system. So ranking it, you know, your most productive time, least productive time, and maybe that middle time. And then doing so, that can help. And it will it will really depend on someone's um, particular, again, their life season or their workload or what they're having to coordinate. But in using that chart, it can also then help you as you look at your calendar and you look at your commitments and you're deciding when you're going to do what, and also even what you're committing to. If you're not really someone that likes evening activities, then maybe you will use that to not sign up for as many things in the evening or, you know, just as an example. So it's using the chart as kind of a guide for you with your commitments and choices. You encourage your readers to determine their purpose and priorities to help schedule the time better. I think oftentimes the tyranny of the urgent robs us of uh, spending the, the time that we really want to spend fulfilling our purpose and living out the priorities that we have set. Uh, how do we go about that? What are some of the practical steps that you can give to help people discover their purpose and priorities? Well, I think it's looking at, at your commitments and calendar currently and identifying those major kind of top purposes for your life. And I, I recommend really trying to hone in on maybe five at the most because 
again, we can't do everything in each season necessarily. So we want to make sure we, we fine tune what those purposes are and even listing those out. And the, the purpose is kind of a main category. And then under that, you can list the different priorities or different parts that support that purpose. And then I think when we do that, it does make it easier to discern what we say yes and no to. And maybe also what we need to be delegating more of, you know, what, what things are under our purpose right now that maybe we could delegate to it, you know, in another capacity. So that's my recommendation is to really look at it as kind of a, almost like a mission. Like, what is my mission right now? What are my purposes? Mm-hmm. You rec- uh, recommend that your uh, readers remove the word busy from uh, their vocabulary. Um, I think many of us would describe our lives as being busy or that we are busy. Why do you make that recommendation and why is that significant? Well, I don't know if I think it's a bad word, but I think it, it can tend to imply that it's, that busyness has just happened to us. And I want people to remember mm. that we, we do have a lot of choice with our time. And I'm not by any means saying that everything is a choice, but I do think a lot of how we manage our time is going to boil back to what we've chosen to commit to or what we've taken on. And so I just, I want people to think of their time, again, as, as more of a responsibility. And I give the alternative of saying, let's seek a full life. I don't think God wants us overwhelmed and overloaded all the time. Well, we have moments, absolutely. But I think a full life to me, and I give the analogy of like a cup of coffee, like we, you know, when we want a cup of coffee, we want a full cup. We don't want a spilling over cup, you know, we don't want it. We know also we don't want it half full, you know, we want that full cup. So I do think we're designed for fullness, but fullness should look more like peace. And I feel like busy implies more of like a panic mode. And I want us to move towards peace for sure. Oh, I love that. Uh, you also recommend minimizing interruptions. That that's key to productivity. And I think some of our listeners are probably chuckling, like, how is that even possible? Because interruptions are either self-induced or they... Um, are imposed on us by others. How how can we increase our productivity by minimizing interruptions? Well, there's a couple of things you can do intentionally. And one is to communicate when possible, you know, maybe clarifying what you need from whether it's people you work with or people you live with. Just if there's certain times you may need to be less interrupted, if you can communicate that on the front end, that can be helpful. And then there's also the tool of our digital devices and all the technology are great. They're, they're a great help, but they also can be a hindrance when we don't put some boundaries in place. So while I know, again, this will be very individual, but it's asking yourself, where could I use more boundaries with my, with my digital um, demands? Could I, you know, check my email hourly rather than every five minutes? Or could I turn off, do not disturb once in a while to really dig into mm-hmm. some productive work? And so it's that intentionality. We can't minimize all interruptions. And then if you are working on some things during a time when it's just a very um, distracting time of your day, that would be the time to choose more of those flexible tasks, those, those things that maybe don't require as much focus, because then you'll be able to respond, like you mentioned, to people's you know, expectations or, or interruptions. Because there's times in our day we have to be available, and so we can't turn that off. But maybe being more intentional with what we're doing at that time can set us up for more success. Yeah, that's good. You um, bring up an interesting suggestion, uh, and that is about how personalities should be reflected in our schedules. Explain what you mean by that and how we can have a a schedule, how we spend our time that reflects uh, who we are in terms of our our personality. Mm -hmm. Well, I want people to, again, I mentioned self-awareness before. I Uh feel like the more we know ourselves, the more we can feel confident in what we're being called to do and also what our strengths are and even what our weaknesses are. And that doesn't mean we 
um, become complacent, but, but that we know what we can do and really focus on not looking to the people around us. I mean, look to other people for motivation, but don't look at them as a form of comparison. You know, I feel like we should be able to, the more we can be secure with who we are and recognizing even our capacity levels. And I share in the book, I tend to have a higher energy level. I'm hardwired that way. But I know there's people in my home I live with who don't have as high of an energy level. And that's okay too. And so it's, it's, it's being at peace with how you're hardwired and then using your strengths to impact your time in the ways that work for you. And if you need more downtime, honoring that. But also for me, I need to honor the fact that I might be more prone to just go, go, go. And I should also make sure I'm carving out that downtime. So yeah. it's, it's honoring yourself, but also saying, how do I match the two? How do I honor myself, but also honor my time? Well, and you're, you're um, so wise and it's timely because we are so familiar now with comparing ourselves to others. Social media paints a picture that others' lives are so much rosier than ours and everything they do is fun and bright and cheerful and attractive. Uh, and that, that temptation toward comparison can really uh, disrupt our, our peace and prevent us from um, fulfilling our purpose and priorities. It's so true. And it's hard. I think it's hard not to, and we can't probably completely avoid mm-hmm. it, but I think that by, um, I think it's where we can press into the Lord and just say, give me, please give me peace with what I'm being called to do. You know, and I've also learned in my own life having patience because, for example, my time overseas was a hard season for me. I felt like I lacked a lot of purpose. And so it could have been easier for me to really compare. But I tried to say, Lord, what is it for me right now? What do I focus on? <laughs> and then just kind of keep my head down and do that, you know, and and again, use other people to spur you on, but not to discourage you. What is ultimately the goal? Once we've identified our priorities, our stress is, is relieved to whatever degree is possible, we're more productive. What's ultimately the goal? The goal for me is I want people to have more harmony in their life. And that in, in the three time zones are not meant to be something rigid. I think what we tend to do is we want like a rigid solution or if that doesn't work, then we just want to throw it out the window and just be super fluid. And I think our goal should be to be somewhere in the middle. There will be, there'll be times to be maybe more rigid and times to be more fluid. But finding that sweet spot, and I use the word intentionality. I think if mm-hmm. we use that as a mindset, that can really guide and direct. And so it doesn't. none of this is necessarily a formula, but it's a mindset of, of am I being intentional with this hour of time? Am I being intentional with this 24 hours? And remembering tomorrow you get a fresh start, you know, so we don't need to live with guilt. We can focus on grace and and start again tomorrow, which is always a refreshing reminder. Uh, Is it not? The book, once again, is titled (laughs) Take Back Your Time, Identify Your Priorities, Decrease Stress and Increase Productivity. It's very practical. It's doable. And if you're looking to be better organized, this is a great way to do that in a way that takes into account just not where your papers go, (laughs) but how to order your life in a way that you can experience joy and peace as was intended. More Morgan Tyree, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Really appreciate it. By the way, the book is published by Revell and is available everywhere. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic coming up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton, engineering. 
Today, we're going to talk with John Malcolm. He's vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government, and he's the director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to talk about a bill uh, to give former inmates a second chance. It's the Fair Chance Act, and it would require the federal government and federal contractors to ban the box as part of hiring practices. That means that box that says, do you have a criminal past? Now, it doesn't mean the, the box is banned forever. If a, um, an offer is extended at that point, uh, then you can uh, do the background check. But it's to give uh, those who have been incarcerated an opportunity to demonstrate their capacity uh, to serve in whatever role and employment that they're seeking. So we'll talk with him about that. We're also going to talk with Jake Warner. He serves as legal counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. He's a key member of the Center for Conscience Initiatives. And we're going to talk about two cases, one that was resolved on Friday, another that was um, heard in Kentucky by the Supreme Court there uh, regarding vendors who uh, will serve anyone under virtually any circumstance, but will not um, produce messages that conflict with their Christian beliefs. So we'll give him an opportunity to explain the one victory and the one pending case that's coming up later this hour as well. We're also going to revisit what's happening at the VA. You might recall the banned Bibles from the Veterans Administration, uh, and that was uh, controversial. Well, that has since been reversed for a number of reasons, and we'll talk about that ban being lifted on Bibles and that chaplains there are now free to do what they do. I had mentioned, um, I don't know if it was earlier this week, this is only Tuesday, it was probably late last week, a a piece uh, for pastors in Christianity Today, and it was about how screens are changing the way we read Scripture. Now, we can be very critical about digital reading habits and how that's rewiring our brains and how um, we process the Bible differently when we Uh, use that kind of technology. But I thought it was interesting that they provided something of a history of the way uh, the the world has approached um, the scriptures over time and wanted to uh, talk about screens and how they're changing the way we read scripture. Christianity is a religion of the word. Christians are people of the book. And these distinctives have defined the Christian faith from the very beginning, even before the age of print that brought us books. So even before there was print, this um, Uh, This gives us something of the history from which we have come. As we enter what many are calling a post-literate age, pastors can help remind people that the essence of the Christian faith centers on the word and words. From the carving of the Ten Commandments to the writing of the Torah to the copying and distribution of letters in the early church, God's plan was for his people to read. However, as the way we read in this digital age changes, so do character of the church will change. Um, How will those reading habits affect the way we interact with the Bible? How will the way people read the Bible alter the church body? Now, these are very interesting questions. And again, Karen Swallow Pryor writing in Christianity Today on how screens are changing the way we read in general, but reading scripture in particular. She writes that long before the printing press and widespread literacy, God was culminating a relationship with his chosen people focused on the written word. The words God carved into stone at Mount Sinai included a caution against images, setting up a peculiar word-based relationship with his followers that contrasted starkly with the image-worshipping pagan nations surrounding the Israelites, an observation made by Neil Postman in Amusing Ourselves to Death. The trend continues through church history. According to David Lyle Jeffrey in People of the Book, Medieval paintings frequently depict Mary, other biblical figures, and church fathers holding the Bible. Such images, even or especially when 
um, anachristic um, bound books did not exist when Mary Bort Christ symbolizes the centrality of reading to Christian faithfulness and point out the concrete, tangible nature of the word. In many of these paintings, the subject is depicted with a finger inserted in the book pages suggesting active reading and reflecting how Thomas needed to put his finger into Christ's body in order to know and believe. God's word, both written and incarnate, beckons us to come close and engage in tactile relationship. Despite the centrality of the written word from the beginning of God's revelation, many generations of believers were unable to read the Bible for themselves. Before the Reformation, biblical words passed through priests, supplemented by images depicted in stained glass windows and in itinerant drama troops performing biblical stories. These symbols offered rich beauty, but images alone cannot convey the abstractions of doctrine. Thus, in the pre-literate age preceding the Reformation, the Bible was delivered and understood only in pieces. The Reformation's focus on reading and the resulting age of literacy it birthed were, in some ways, the culmination of the logocentrism that runs through the Bible and God's relationship with creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. From John 1, one is a direct echo of Genesis 1, when God created the world through his words. And while the word of the Lord refers to all the ways God reveals himself, whether spoken in Genesis 1 or in a vision, Genesis 15.1, or written, Exodus 24.12 and 2 Timothy 3.16, his word is always logical, linear, and coherent. Likewise, the key feature of a literate age is of cultivation, not only of the ability to read, but the propensity to think in a logical, linear, coherent fashion. Paper or pixels. The act of reading is not natural to the human brain, and while scientists see reading in terms of evolution and adaptation, reading is, in some ways, supernatural or at least unnatural. In her book, Reader, Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World, neuroscientist Marianne Wolf explains that reading is not hardwired in the human brain the way language is. Not only does the remarkable plasticity of the human brain make reading possible, but the activity of reading creates new circuits in the brain. These aid in learning abstract and creative concepts that go beyond the brain genetically programming function. Reading demands extraordinary cerebral complexity, Wolf says, and the brain requires years of deep reading process to be formed. Our reading habits, therefore, have the potential to shape our brains for good or ill. Deep reading activities at regions of the brain related to touch, motion and feeling and helps develop the background knowledge that we bring to further reading and living. The consistent strengthening of the connections among our analogical, uh, emphatic, and background knowledge processes generally well beyond reading. Wolf explains, when we learn to connect these processes over and over in our reading, it becomes easier to apply them to our own lives. Her findings seem to confirm the truth of Psalm 119.11. I have hidden your words in my heart that I might not sin against you. Well, cognitive science shows that our brains work one way when accustomed to reading in logical linear, linear passage, uh, patterns rather, and another way when continually bouncing from tweet to tweet, picture to picture, and screen to screen. Wolf's research shows that reading on digital devices doesn't create the same kind of brain circuits as deep reading. In The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, Nicholas Carr cautions, Calm, focused, undistracted, the linear mind is being pushed aside by a new kind of mind that wants and needs to take in and dole out information in short, disjointed, often overlapping bursts, the faster, the better. 
In an article aptly titled, Your Paper Brain and Your Kindle Brain Aren't the Same Thing, PRI reports that the habits of superficial comprehension developed in digital reading transfers to all reading, such as the more you read on screens, the more your mind shifts towards nonlinear reading or thinking, a practice that involves things like skimming a screen or having your eyes dart around a web page. In reporting on another sto- uh, study rather published in 2017, Inside Higher Education notes that readers may not comprehend complex or lengthy materials as well when they view it digitally as when they read it on paper. So what does this mean for Christians who are increasingly reading the Word on screens instead of on paper? More than half of Bible users include some form of digital reading, searching or listening in their Bible usage. A survey reported in a 2015 Journal of Religion article titled E-Reading and the Christian Bible finds that a majority of respondents, 58 percent, cited ease and convenience as a major advantage to digital Bibles. Pastors must consider whether this characteristic is one they should tap into or disciple people away from. Many churches already provide physical Bibles during services, but a gentle nudge to use them instead of a Bible app, a page number to help them flip to the correct spot, and a few extra seconds before reading the passage aloud may be worth a slight inconvenience. Many survey respondents complain that digital text tend to isolate verses apart from their immediate context as well as the Bible as a whole. These respondents noted that the physical layout of the biblical text is important for comprehension, memory, and correct interpretation. Well, it goes on from there with a section on Bible reading in a post-literate culture, which is really interesting to consider how the way we read Scripture may have an impact on our ability and likelihood of comprehending it in its broader context and just sort of parking on a passage um, in the text in the way that one would in reading in a linear, more logical fashion. Sort of an interesting consideration. Coming up, we're going to talk with John Malcolm. He's vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government. We're going to talk about the Fair Chance Act that would require the question or the box be eradicated until an offer for employment has been extended. More on that in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Congress is currently considering the Fair Chance Act of 2019. It's a bill that's designed to increase the odds that formerly incarcerated individuals can get jobs when they're released from prison and prove to the world that they have turned a new leaf. Well, the Chance Act would require the federal government and federal contractors to ban the box. It's that box that says, do you have a criminal record? And it's part of the hiring practice. Well, this would prevent a prospective employer from conducting a criminal background check or inquiring about an applicant's criminal record until as a conditional job offer is extended. Well, once that offer is made, the employer can then conduct the criminal background check as needed. Now, uh, my next guest says that the bill has a lot of merit. It's worthy of serious consideration by Congress. You might also recall that last December, the president signed into law the formerly incarcerated reenter society transformed safely transitioning every person act who better known as the first step act. Uh, it was a major focus of the First Step Act, rather, to drive down the recidivism rate. So this is part of an overall uh, uh, effort to address uh, the recidivism rate and the prospect of those who have been incarcerated finding gainful employment. Well, here to talk with us about that is John Malcolm. He's vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies on a bill to give former inmates a second chance, or perhaps a better way of putting that, a better chance. John Malcolm, thank you so much for joining us. 
Great to be with you, Georgine. Well, the Fair Chance Act seems like a great idea. When I first heard about it, I thought, okay, you can't ask an individual if they have a criminal record. That doesn't seem fair to the employer. But what it does essentially is postpone that question, giving the individual an opportunity to make the case that I, first of all, am qualified for the work, and then that check is uh, is possible in the context of federal employment. Yeah, no, that that's right. I mean, the bill would, would, by the way, create certain exceptions. So if it's a law enforcement position or a national security-related position or the position would require access to classified information, for example, uh, then the bill wouldn't apply. And you can, get a, you can do a criminal background check up front and you can ask an applicant about any criminal record that they might have. And, and I think you've adequately summarized the point of doing this. It is to say, Look, you people who send in, they, in on the form that has the box that indicates that they have a criminal record, very often people will see that box checked, would be employers, that is, and they'll just pitch the application, and the person never gets their foot in the door. And the goal here is to allow the applicant to come in and have a chance to impress that would-be employer. And if the employer is sufficiently impressed to say, okay, look, I would like to extend an offer to you conditioned on a background check, then it is a lot more likely that if that would-be employer finds out that the applicant has a criminal record, that rather than just saying, withdrawing the offer and saying, too bad, so sad, that employer might call the applicant back in and say, look, I've now discovered you have a criminal record. Let's talk about it. You know, how did that happen? How has your life changed? What have you learned from that? Basically, why I was impressed with you. Why should I continue to trust you now that I know you have this criminal record? And and it facilitates that kind of dialogue and thereby increases the chances that at the end of the end of the day, the employer will say, you know what, I'm going to take a chance on you and offer you the job. Now, at any point during the interview, even after a job offer has been made, a conditional job offer, is the uh, person being interviewed required uh, to say, I have a criminal record, or are they required to answer the question if that offer has been extended and the employer, uh, the potential employer asks the question? Well, once the conditional job offer has been extended, then it's you know, fair game. You can ask the applicant uh, about it. You can do a criminal background uh, check. The idea is to prevent that sort of inquiry before a conditional job yeah. offer is made. And there's a series of graduating uh, sanctions in the bill, uh, starting first with a reprimand and you know all the way up to potential suspension if you're a federal contractor from being in the program, uh, disciplinary action against the employee or contractor who does this. There are some states that have banned the box laws, by the way, that impose criminal penalties, which is way over the top from my perspective. The fair chance doesn't do that. But it does have a series of graduating civil penalties uh, for violating it. Now, this is designed to address the recidivism um, rate that is astronomical. Explain what the problem is and how this will help to, or at least has the potential to help to reduce that rate. Sure. So, look, as many as, as one in three Americans may have a criminal record of some kind. A lot of those people, in fact, probably the majority of them have been incarcerated at some point. So the First Step Act was designed to say, okay, while you are incarcerated, we're going to give you certain evidence-based 
uh, programs that are going to reduce your risk of, of recidivism, and that can include uh, job skills programs. So we're going to help you while you are in prison or part of the criminal justice system to improve your lot in life, to you know, give you what you need to become a law-abiding citizen. And then this bill recognizes that people who have a criminal record have all kinds of hoops that they need to jump through and hurdles that they need to clear, and that a lot of employers are going to be very, very uncomfortable offering a job to somebody with a criminal record. And this is a start. It in essence says, look, if you're, part, if you're applying for a job with the federal government or if you are a government contractor, you need to at least hear that applicant out before you make that kind of inquiry. Now, I'm, I'm very reluctant about imposing mm-hmm. obligations on private employers, but this is at least a measured step designed to address a very serious problem because you know studies indicate that 50% or more of the people who check that box never are granted an, an initial interview. And if people are warehoused uh, or, or shunted into a corner and denied opportunities for gainful employment for too long, they're eventually going to end up recidivating, and that's not in anybody's best interest. Yeah. You write that in 2014, the FBI estimated that 77.1 million individuals, nearly one-third of the people living in this country, had a criminal record. And a bit later, you write that over 100 million people living in the United States and its protectorates have a criminal record. So this is a significant population. Um, with an unemployment uh, rate that is five times the unemployment rate for the general population. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and of course, it not only has an impact on the, the formerly incarcerated individual, but also on their loved ones who depend on them for financial support, moral support. Uh, you know, so families are affected by this, too. Uh, and we care a lot about we have staggeringly high recidivism rates. We care a lot about that. We care about public safety. Uh, one of the best things that you can do to try to uh, enhance public safety is by actually giving these people who may well have turned a new leaf an opportunity to prove themselves. Now, you've mentioned that there are some limited states that have similar policies, and this only applies to um, uh, federal inmates. But how have we seen this um, impact the recidivism rate or at least the employability of those who have formerly been incarcerated? Well, there isn't that requirement yet at the federal level. Uh, You know, in terms of states, I'm not sure exactly what the impact is. There are some studies uh, out there that indicate that you know, this has had a dramatic effect in terms of people being able to get uh, jobs, particularly uh, in blighted areas or high crime uh, areas, that it has helped uh, cut down on recidivism uh, rates. There are a couple of other studies that actually suggested it, it could end up hurting uh, minority applicants who don't have a criminal record because employers are going to say, well, if I can't ask the question about whether you uh, have a criminal record, I'm just going to assume that if you're dressed a particular way or if you're black, it's more likely that you have a criminal record. Uh, and so it could be counterproductive. And this is something that certainly warrants further study. Uh, but look, something has to be done. It's very good that Congress is looking at mm-hmm. this. Uh, And there are a lot of now private employers that are starting to say, you know what, Uh, people do deserve a second chance. And they are discovering that when they hire some of these people, that they will work extremely hard and be very diligent employees because they want to prove not only to their employers, but to the rest of the world that they are now uh, prepared to become law-abiding, productive citizens. Now, the the Fair Chance Act of 2019 follows the First Step Act. It seems there's a a package of uh, lawmaking policy that is designed to address this uh, very serious problem. Are you encouraged uh, by the fact that these are, are issues that are being taken seriously uh, currently in Washington? Yes, you know, I am. Uh, these are difficult issues. It took a yes. long time to get the First Step Act 
uh, done. There are a lot of states that are looking uh, at reforming their criminal justice uh, system, some quite successfully. I'm, I'm glad at least that there is a drumbeat behind this effort. And I'm not in favor of just sort of releasing dangerous people back into the streets. There may be some on the left who refer to this mass incarceration. I, you know, I'm not in favor of that, but I am in favor of doing what is smart to keep the right people locked up for the right amount of time. And for the rest of the people, 95% of whom of folks who are incarcerated are going to be released back into our communities, that they are given a fighting chance to become law-abiding, uh, productive citizens, because that's in everyone's best interest, particularly their own. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, uh, for talking with us about it. Great to be with you, George. Appreciate it very much. Again, John Malcolm is vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Next, we're going to talk with Jake Warner. He serves as legal counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, where he is a key member of the Center for Conscience. We're going to talk about a couple of cases dealing with just that, conscience, and whether or not uh, those who produce videos or T-shirts, for that matter, uh, can decline to uh, to create certain messages for would-be clients. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the state Supreme Court in Kentucky on Friday heard arguments on a key First Amendment case. It started back in 2012. Blaine Adamson, he's the owner of the promotional printing company, Hands-On Originals. It was challenged in court because he didn't want to create T-shirts expressing a message contrary to his core Christian convictions. Well, after arguments on Friday, attorneys for the Alliance Defending Freedom emerged. They were hopeful that the Kentucky court will uphold his freedom of speech and protect his right to operate his business in a manner that reflects his core convictions. Well, this seems to be a recurring theme. And here to talk with us about this particular case is Jake Warner. He serves as legal counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, where he is a key member of the Center for Conscience Initiatives. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, it seems to me the key question in this case is whether the government can force a printer to print shirts that uh, bear a message that violates his core, um, uh, his religious faith and his core values. Give us a little background on uh, Blaine Adamson and this case. Well, you're exactly right. The government shouldn't force people to express messages that violate their deepest beliefs, and that's what this case is about. Blaine Adamson operates Hands-On Originals, a Lexington, Kentucky-based print shop. In 2012, Blaine declined to print T-shirts that promoted a local gay pride festival. While Blaine serves everyone, he just can't print every message. So Blaine offered to connect a requesting organization with another printer who would create the shirts for the same price. After that, the organization filed a complaint accusing Blaine of discrimination. But thankfully, Blaine won before multiple lower courts, uh, but the government appealed to the Kentucky Supreme Court and oral arguments were held this past Friday. I think it's important to emphasize something that you uh, said uh, just a moment ago. Blaine serves everyone, but he doesn't print every message. Clarify that, because I think that's really important to understand uh, whether or not he is discriminating based on who his clients are, as opposed to the message they are asking him to uh, to print. That's the key fact for sure. Blaine serves everyone. He just can't print every message. For example, uh, back in 2012, uh, Blaine printed some materials for a lesbian singer who actually performed at the 2012 Pride Festival that year. And at the same time, Blaine has also declined to create a church's request to print a picture of Jesus on a bucket of chicken. So it doesn't matter who Blaine's customer is, it it's always goes back to the message that Blaine is asked to print. 
and the government shouldn't interfere with printers' editorial discretion on what messages they push out. So the uh, Supreme Court uh, in Kentucky heard the case uh, this last week. Uh, Your impression of how that went and what are your expectations? We're optimistic that the court will uphold the lower court's decision and once again affirm that creative professionals have the right to live and work consistently with their deepest beliefs and that government has no business telling people what they can and cannot say. I think it's important to put this in a broader context. One example uh, might be a, a lesbian printer wouldn't be required to uh, create uh, shirts promoting a church rally opposing same-sex marriage, for example. So this wouldn't just apply to those who are uh, motivated by their religious faith, but those who have core values that conflict with the message they're being asked to present. That's exactly right. The same principle that protects Blaine Adamson is the same principle that protects everyone, including people who disagree with them. It's the same reason that government has no business, for example, forcing a Democratic speechwriter to write speeches for a Republican political candidate. The government just simply has no business uh, compelling that kind of speech. Now, on the same day that the Kentucky Supreme Court were hearing um, arguments in this case, uh, you had another case. uh, The Eighth Circuit Court ruled in favor of Christian videographers who didn't want to film gay weddings, and this was a crucial win. The, the core um, questions are essentially the same, whether or not individuals, in this case, Angel and Carl Larson, who are owners of Telescope Media Group in St. Cloud, Minnesota, whether or not they can be forced to produce materials, in this case, videos of, uh, of events that conflict with their sincerely held Christian beliefs. So this was a win. Does this inform the case that we've just been talking about? That was a significant win on Friday. We also represent Carl and Angel Larson, their Minnesota filmmakers, and the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals got it right. They upheld the freedom of Carl and Angel Larson to create films that express messages consistent with their religious beliefs. So the same principle that protects the Larsons is the same principle that protects Blaine Adamson, and it's the same principle that protects every creative professional around the country. So yes, we hope that the Kentucky Supreme Court adopts language and opinions from the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals decision released this past Friday. And as was the case with Blaine Adamson, uh, the Larsons say that they will work with anyone, any race, any sex, sexual orientation, religion, but they will not produce videos that advance viewpoints that violate their Christian beliefs. So this is uh, this is based on the message rather than the client and their lifestyle or orientation. That's exactly right. The Larsons serve everyone just like Blaine serves everyone. They just can't create films that express every message. And the Eighth Circuit recognized that important distinction. They said, hey, these people serve everyone. There's just some messages that they can't express through their films, and they deserve protection under the First Amendment. Well, Alliance Defending Freedom does an excellent job of representing clients like these we've just been talking about today and so many others in preserving our religious uh, liberty. These same kinds of questions seem to keep coming up where we're being asked in one state or one locality whether or not an individual can be compelled to use their uh, their artistic capacity in a way that conflicts with their core values. Do you think that at some point there's going to be a, a final answer that applies in every case that clarifies um, whether or not the state can compel uh, individuals to, uh, to create uh, what they choose not to or disagree with uh, in terms of creating? Uh, will the Supreme Court, do you think, resolve this issue, or are we going to continue to see case after case asking essentially the same question, just using different words? 
I think the Supreme Court most definitely is going to have to weigh in on this issue. Creative professionals around the country, no matter what they believe about marriage or anything else, they need to know what their rights are and whether their expressive choices are protected by the First Amendment. And I think what we're seeing right now is a turning point, some momentum shifting in favor of freedom of speech, and we hope that that momentum carries all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court expresses that, yes, creative professionals have the right to live and work consistent with their deepest beliefs. Well, as we've been mentioning, the uh, Kentucky Supreme Court heard arguments on Friday. In this case, we do know that a trial court and a court of appeals both ruled in favor of uh, Mr. Blaine, um, uh, that he did not discriminate and cannot be forced to print messages. Are you optimistic with the Supreme Court? I know it's difficult to to predict what an outcome might be, but given uh, the hearing that just took place, are you optimistic that the court will come out on the right side of this question? Yes, we're optimistic that the Kentucky Supreme Court will get the answer right, just like the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals got the answer right on Friday. This is an important freedom that we all have. Government simply has no business telling us what we can and cannot say, and we have every reason to believe that the Kentucky Supreme Court will affirm that principle in Blaine Adamson's case when it releases its decision. Well, we're certainly hopeful that that will be the case, but I think it's important to point out that doesn't just happen. These issues have to be championed well. These arguments have to be framed uh, correctly in the setting of a court. And Alliance Defending Freedom has always done an excellent job of representing religious freedom in a way that I think helps us to win these arguments. And I want to commend you and uh, Alliance Defending Freedom for your work. And thank you for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for your support and thanks for having me on. Jake Warner is uh, legal counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, where he is a key member of the Center for Conscience Initiatives. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back momentarily. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. And we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the VA has now officially lifted the ban on Bibles in a move to support religious freedom. You might recall there was a big kerfuffle over the uh, the notion that a Bible could be displayed with other paraphernalia to honor the memory of those who served our country at the VA. Well, the uh, Veterans Affairs Secretary Robert Wilkie recalls that as a child, he visited a VA hospital at Christmas time. And he says that one of my fondest memories growing up was used to, uh, we used to sing Christmas carols at the VA hospital in Fayetteville, North Carolina. He said, sitting on the 10th floor office of VA uh, headquarters in Vermont Avenue Northwest, overlooking the White House, that some Something as simple and as decent as that was being stopped, he said, with the support of the president. We just said enough is enough. Well, Wilkie grew up at Fort Bragg, the son of an Army artillery commander. He himself served in both the Navy and the Air Force Reserves and as a Pentagon official. Since becoming the VA secretary, that's a little more than a year ago, he has uh, returned to North Carolina. He says, I was in my hometown. Uh, We have a beautiful chapel in the old VA hospital, and I walked in and there were no Bibles, the secretary said. It had been stripped of the symbols of religion. Well, the VA revised directives to permit religious literature, symbols, and displays at agency facilities following a string of incidents in recent years in which individual medical centers banned Christmas carols and a Christmas tree, chapels removed Bibles, chaplains faced restraint on religious expression. Generally, the VA... Uh, inconsistent uh, policies across the country were creating, well, something of a problem. Officials um, designed the changes to protect the religious freedom of veterans and their families. Well, the new guidelines that went into effect last month referred 
to the recent Supreme Court ruling allowing a cross-shaped memorial at World War I dead to continue standing on public land in Bladensburg, Maryland. The high court's decision, it highlighted the important role that religious symbols play in the lives of Americans and their um, consistency with uh, constitutional principles. Well, uh, Mr. Wilkie said the military culture has been part of my being, an important part of what I believe. I've seen the effect of combat both in uniform and out of uniform. That military culture in which he grew up, Wilkie said, also prioritizes the ability of our troops to worship, uh, their right to worship, their right to have access to chaplains and to be free to celebrate their faith or no faith at all. He added, now moving over to VA, I consider the spiritual well-being of our veterans, their spiritual health to be just as important as the medical Medical competence and technical competence of our doctors and nurses. They should have that fundamental right available to them to access chaplains, to access their Bibles. Well, the new guidelines call for inclusion in appropriate circumstances of religion, religious content in publicly accessible displays at VA facilities and allow patients and their guests to request and be provided religious literature, symbols, and sacred texts during visits to VA chapels and during their treatment at VA, not just Christian, but of all faiths. The guidelines also allow the VA to accept donations of religious literature, cards and symbols at its facilities, and to distribute them to VA patrons under appropriate circumstances. Well, under the old regime, you couldn't have those outward symbols, Wilkie said. You could not have religious texts in the chapels unless you brought them in. The chaplain could not walk the halls seeking people to talk with. There had to be a specific request. Well, the allowed literature may include the Bible, the Quran, the Talmud, and any other religious text, according to of VA officials. Still, the uh, policy faces opposition. The VA's actions undermine our Constitution. That's Sam Grover, Associate Counsel for the Freedom from Religion Foundation, in a letter to Wilkie objecting to the standards. He says um, uh, these uh, undermined uh, constitutional principles, which intentionally establishes a secular government in order to preserve religious freedom, a right enjoyed by individuals, Uh, Were the VA truly concerned about protecting the religious freedom of veterans, it could simply do what the Constitution prescribes and keep its facilities free from government endorsing religion, he wrote. Well, Wilkie said he doesn't anticipate litigation over the policy because it is based on the recent Supreme Court ruling. What Justice Neil Gorsuch said in the Maryland Cross case was absolutely on target. Wilkie said, because you might be offended doesn't give you the standing to stop other people from worshiping. For me, this is not only a military issue, it's a religious liberty issue and one that is vitally important to those we serve. The high court's ruling should affirm the VA's policy. The director of the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation, Emily Cow, points out, on the heels of the Supreme Court's 7-2 decision that reaffirmed the Constitution's protection of the tradition of public displays of religious monuments, symbols, and practices, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs took a much-needed step to clarify that religious symbols, as well as spiritual and pastoral care, are welcome at VA facilities. It's not imposed on those who are not interested, but it's not withheld from those who are. Millions of soldiers from different religious backgrounds have relied upon their faith and gained encouragement from religious literature, symbols, and displays. She went on to uh, to say, no member of the military should have to hide their faith when they put on a uniform, nor should our public square be devoid of religious symbols. Well, in January, the Manchester Veterans Affairs Medical Center in New Hampshire removed a Bible on display at a missing
Leaving Man table after a secular group, the Military Religious Freedom Foundation, objected. The Bible has been carried by a prisoner of war from World War II, but the group said some veterans had complained about its display. Well, after reviewing new complaints about its removal, hospital officials restored the Bible the following month. In May, however, a a Vietnam veteran sued to have the Bible removed. A Bible that was owned by a survivor in the Battle of the Bulge had to be put under lock and key because several people, unknown, had complained that uh, this was an affront to them. Wilkie went on to say, It is incongruous to me because we send our young people to some pretty rough places. The notion that someone who would have been in these situations is so offended by the sight of a Bible that he wants to sue and deprive his comrades of that comfort is just beyond the pale. On well, late 2015, a VA clinic in Salem, Virginia, initially blocked a Christmas tree from the premises, stating in a letter that to employees that trees have been deemed a, to promote Christian religion and will not be permitted in any public areas this year. The clinic reversed course in late November after public pushback and allowed the Christmas tree. Then in January of 2014, then-House Veterans Affairs Chairman Jeff Miller uh, wrote then-VA Secretary Eric Shinseki, citing a VA medical center in Augusta, Georgia, that banned high school Christmas carolers. Well, Miller also wrote that VA officials in Iowa City, Iowa, had told the American Legion not to hand out gifts in a wrapped paper that said Merry Christmas, and a VA hospital in Dallas had refused to deliver a handwritten Christmas card from school children because they included the words Merry Christmas and God bless you. Well, such matters are important beyond individuals' freedom of religion, affecting the health of veterans in the VA's care, Wilkie said. The issue of Christmas carols is about simple courtesy, the ability to make people smile at a time in their lives when they're in a hospital for whatever reason, for groups to come in and spread comfort, he said. Emotional substance is absolutely something that we should be allowing, not standing in the way of. And so they will continue at the VA with the Supreme Court decision and the overall decision at the VA to restore them. Tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Todd Chipman. He's the author of Until Every Child is Home, Why the Church Can and Must Care for Orphans. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.